Let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11. It was 18 years ago, a little more than that, in March, when nine of America's satellites out in space detected an event of biblical proportions. Those satellites stationed at various points in the solar system all simultaneously recorded a bizarre event that occurred deep in space. It was, and still is, in fact, the most powerful burst of energy that's ever been recorded by mankind. Astronomers who have studied the readings and in the years since continue to be awestruck, mumbling to themselves at what they witnessed through those instruments. A burst of gamma radiation was detected that lasted for only a mere one-tenth of a second. But in that instant, there was emitted as much energy as our sun radiates outward in 3,000 years of continuous solar explosions. An astrophysicist named Doyle Evans, who works at the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratories in New Mexico, said that the energy that was being emitted was at the rate of 100 billion times greater than the energy rate of our sun. And if that gamma ray burst had occurred in our galaxy, it would have sent our entire atmosphere aglow. And if our sun had emitted the same amount of energy, even for a tenth of a second, our earth would have vaporized instantly. But there's more. The satellites were able to pinpoint the location of that burst to a spot in a galaxy known merely as N49. It's associated with the remnants of a supernova that was believed to have exploded about 10,000 years ago. When a star explodes into a supernova, the outer shell is blown away, the inner core condenses down, and from its own gravity it creates a neutron star, and the core becomes a single huge nucleus, shrinking from a size larger than our sun, 860,000 miles in diameter, down to a mere compact ball of perhaps five miles across. Those neutrons are so incredibly dense that one cubic inch weighs 20 million million tons. Many astronomers believe the satellite studies will open up a new understanding of what's going on out there. To us who are untrained and ignorant, as we seem to often be on the technical side of all this, it does underline the 10th verse. And look again at that. The day of the Lord will come... 2 Peter 3.10, like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. What's interesting is, God says, turn away your eyes from that which is passing away, and look to the person about whom and with whom all of eternity is going to revolve around. The end of the universe, as we know it, will be something like this gamma flash. It will be something like the death star of the ultimate Star Wars. And if you are wise, you should plan to have nothing of value still on the earth when it explodes at the premier showing of this gamma flash from God. God says, send anything you want to last out of range. Your time, your money, and people all of them can be sent ahead. And that's why Peter says in verse 11, 
since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be in our holy conduct and in our godliness? We shouldn't overlook Peter's piercing question. As Peter faced an imminent execution, this weary and wizened old fisherman lifts his scarred face and looking across centuries peers into our souls as he looks at us he says what kind of people should you be and verse 18 tells us as I repeated earlier verse 18 we should be people who are growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ giving him the glory both now and to the day of eternity. As we turn now to 1 Thessalonians, and if you want to turn back a few pages to Paul's epistle, we're continuing in our study, and we've gotten to the fourth chapter and the 13th verse. As we start to look at the end of the universe as narrated by God, we need to be acting like we're waiting for Jesus, like we're looking for Jesus, like we're expecting Jesus to return. And we should be Focusing and turning inward all of the desires of our life to point as those who are awaiting Jesus. I want you to go on a journey with me tonight from this verse. We have two stops. First, after we read the text, we're going to look at the dark, murky depths of what happens to people that don't believe what we believe. Then we're going to look at the triumphant hope of what we have to look forward to because we believe what we believe. The text is verse 13 where the apostle paul is trying to convince these early christians that he only spent as far as we know three weekends with and then a little bit of time after that he only spent three sabbath days with the christians in thessalonica then a brief amount of time after that then he was run out of town and in those three weeks He was able to give them a foundational view of theology. They began to know, as chapter 1, and we studied many, many months ago when we were back there, they knew that Jesus was God's Son, 110. They knew that Jesus was in heaven. They knew that he had died in their place. And verse 10 also says he was raised from the dead. His name is Jesus. He was the one who was the deliverer. And wrath is coming. They knew all that from a very short period of time. Verse 9 says they had learned that that God was the true God, that idols were false, that God was living. And in that little time he spent with those people, they had a complete rounded theology, which included a very, very intense awareness that Jesus was coming back at any moment. And Paul was expecting him, and Paul was living his life, always looking over his shoulder, And everything he was doing, expecting Jesus to interrupt him and find him doing what he was doing. And he wanted how he was living and what he was involved with to please the Lord who was coming at any time. That's what motivated him to cross over 3,000 miles of walking and an equal number of thousands of miles of sailing treacherous seas. He wanted to be found busily doing what would please his master. And that's why when we get to chapter 4, verse 13... The people had heard this so much. But now Paul had been gone long enough that dear saints in the assembly were already starting to die. And everyone thought they would still be alive when Jesus returned. 
And so there was starting to be question and false teachers had arisen and they were starting to say that, that Jesus had already come back or he wasn't coming back or they had missed it or they weren't ready enough or whatever. And they were getting all confused. And so Paul writes a letter back to them. In verse 13 he says, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to get all mixed up. We don't want you to be confused. We don't want your hearts to be all in an uproar. You're supposed to be in peace, Christians or brethren, about those who have died. Now remember that Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ had changed everything. In the ancient world, people lived in cities of the dead. Necropoli, they're called. Uh, the, the polis means city and necro means dead. Dead cities. And they would make these big tombs and they would just be in state there and they would, they would be forever interred in their cities of the dead. But Christianity said, no, no. Christians don't die their bodies sleep in the dust and their spirits are instantly transported into the presence of their living and true God. And so that's why Christians began burying their dead no longer in the cities of the dead, the necropoli, but in cemeteries. Because the Greek word koimeo, from which we get the English word cemetery, means sleeping places. And that's why Christians believed that their bodies were sleeping and that's why they would turn them and have them so that when they sat up they were facing east. And that's why even in cemeteries you find all the, the, the gravestones are turned in, in a specific way so that when the person sits up, they're facing the east and they're awaiting the call of Christ to his presence. And so Paul says, don't be uninformed about those who are, whose bodies are resting in the dust. Because I don't want you to grieve as the rest who have no hope. That's all the further we'll get in this. It's going to be a long journey because there's so much here. And what we see, first of all, is the Apostle Paul is telling them that we as believers, as Christians, tonight, not just 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, in fact, God's Word doesn't have a lot of impact if we leave it just kind of sitting over there in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. But the purpose of the teaching and preaching of God's Word is to build a bridge that goes from Thessalonica A.D. 51 to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if what Paul said to them 1940 some years ago doesn't impact us today, then, then there's something wrong with our connection. Because the same God who inspired those words back then wants to bring them home to our lives today. And what Paul says in verse 13, number one, is we are to be a contrast to the lost people. Verse 13, I'll read it again. I don't want you to be uninformed. Christians or brethren, about those who are dead, those whose bodies are sleeping in the dust, whose spirits are in the presence of Jesus Christ. Don't grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now, he doesn't say it's wrong to get sad at funerals. He doesn't say it's wrong to grieve the loss of loved ones. He doesn't say that the Christians are to go around stoic at death and just, you know, act like they're above all that. No, he's saying it's okay to grieve, but your sorrow should always be mixed with a big dose of hope. We are to be a contrast to the lost. I want you to listen as I read a few tombstones to you, okay? I want to read to you what lost people alive in the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul, what they thought about death. It wasn't very pleasant. It kind of sounds like what people think about it now. Because in their tombstones were echoed the despair that the people knew. Paul told them they should sorrow as those who have hope, but in the face of death, pagans in the world of Paul, in the worlds of Christ, stood in utter despair. They met death with grim resignation and bleak hopelessness. 
One writer that was contemporary wrote, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Theocritus wrote, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died have no hope. Catullus wrote, when our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. You ever read about the suicide of Ernest Hemingway? The best-selling existential author of a generation ago, as he went into his well-stocked gun closet and found a quick-action, spring-loaded, triggered shotgun and carefully took it and put it and propped it against his head and blew his head off. You know, he believed what he wrote in his existential literature. He described, and Albert Camus with him, described death as being an endless darkness. In fact, they describe life, and if you've ever read The Existentialist, it's very worthless, profitless, but if you ever have, you'll find out that, that their description of life is this. They say it's black, and all of a sudden, for an instant, you see a door open, you see a bunch of people eating and drinking and partying, and you see a bird fly in, and then the bird flies back out and the door shuts and it's black again. They said that's all that life amounts to. We have modern-day pagans that have no hope of eternity. On their tombstones, grim epitaphs were written 2,000 years ago. One reads this along the Apian way, I was not, I became, I am not, and I care not. A pathetic papyrus letter that has come down to us is a letter of sympathy. It runs like this, Irene to Tanafrius and Philo, good comfort to you. I was as sorry and wept over the departed one as I wept for Didymus. All things whatsoever were fitting I did, and all of mine, Epaphroditus and Thermoluthion and Philion and Apollonius and Plantus. Nevertheless, against such things one can do nothing, therefore comfort one another. Very encouraging. What they said is, they died and there's nothing we can do about it. One great noted Greek scholar who spent his life studying these texts says this, The contrast between the gloomy despair of the heathen and the triumphant hope of the Christian mourner is nowhere more forcibly brought out than in their monumental inscriptions. The contrast of the tombs, for instance, on the Apian Way, above the ground and below the ground, has often been dwelt upon. What he's talking about is this, and and this is something that that our next tour is going to do. When you go down the Apian Way, lining it are these marble edifices of all the luminaries of the ancient Roman Empire. And the wealthy, moneyed people built these big mausoleums, which stand to this day. And in Latin, they chiseled on the side their last words. Twenty to thirty feet below the Apian Way are the catacombs, those subterranean tunnels out of the volcanic material that go down sometimes six and seven and ten stories underground and run for miles. And in those catacombs, little niches were made where the ashes or bones of those who were martyred in the Colosseum or in the Forum area were were brought lovingly by the first century saints. And they would take them and they would place them in niches and then they would seal them up. And on the outside they would write verses of hope. Listen to the contrast as Lightfoot tells us about it. On the one hand there is the dreary wail that's above ground of despair from the Roman citizens the effect which is only heightened by the pomp of outward splendor from which it issues. In other words, all the ornate mausoleums that are made. On the other, 20 feet underground, are the exalting psalms of hope, shining more brightly in all their ill-written, ill-spelt records amidst the darkness 
of their subterranean caves. This is a more striking illustration than any quotation from literature which could be produced, yet such testimony is available. What he's saying is this. You want to see Christianity in all of its glory? Just walk for a block down the Apian Way. And if you can read Latin, if you had to endure that in school, you can tell that those people were despairing and hopeless. And then go down to a catacomb and stand, as I've stood so many times, and celebrated the hope we have in Christ with a group of people who were living in a dank, dark, water-dripping, moldy existence for their lives hiding out. And every day they would creep after the, the fires were extinguished in the forum and they would creep up the sewer pipes, the drainage pipes of the forum and of the Colosseum, and they would go and they would lovingly gather the remains of their mothers and fathers and uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters and friends, and they would come back rejoicing and saying, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, because they knew their loved ones were far better, because they were in, immediately, the presence of Jesus Christ when the veil of his flesh was rent and their lives were extinguished. Why were the Christians so hopeful and the pagans so gloomy? Well, Paul says this in verse 13, because Christ died... We will never know the horror of being separated from God's presence for eternity. Jesus experienced that horror for us. And at death, lost people began to taste eternal horror. And in life, saved people began to taste eternal life. And so through Christ, we become a contrast. Though our bodies sleep in the dust, our spirits live in Christ's presence. And though the pagans are hopeless, in life and in death, We are hope-filled in life and in death. For just a moment, I want to contrast probably one of the clearest ones in the Scripture. Look with me at Luke 16. And, And I've alluded to this passage many times, but if you've never marked it, you ought to. And I would encourage you to. Luke chapter 16 is Jesus Christ telling us, as no less than the divine reporter, and this is the only time it's ever been done, that's why Luke 16 is so powerful, Jesus Christ himself goes down to the grave, and he personally, as a reporter, gives us a very clear report and shows us what happens the instant a lost person dies and what happened the instant a righteous person died. And he tells us all about life beyond the door of death. Life through the grave, through the door of the grave, he props it open and he points out what's going on in the other side. And it's not what Betty Eady wrote about in her much acclaimed, best-selling, false doctrine book, Embraced by the Light. It's, it's very much different. So if you ever wonder what happens to your lost loved ones and your lost neighbors and your lost friends and fellow workers when they die... Jesus Christ reports that right here in Luke chapter 16. The Lord of truth, Christ Jesus, gives us a glimpse of the grave through the door of death. And he gives us the laws of death for the lost and the laws of death for the saved. And gives us, in these brief verses starting in verse 22, no less than a dozen different truths of what people are experiencing on the other side when they pass out into eternity 
in their immortal soul is forever bound either in righteousness or in unrighteousness. I'm going to start reading in verse six or verse 19. And this is what might be called a prayer from hell. It's the, the story. It's not a parable. It's the, the true story Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus. You say, wait a minute, how do you know it's not a parable? Well, because parables, number one, never named people by name. And number two, parables always had a figurative meaning. They didn't have a literal meaning. And they didn't name personages from the Old Testament and from the, the, the verifiable biographical past. And so this is not a parable. It's okay if your Bible says it's a parable, but it's not. Because it's a true biographical report by Jesus Christ of the fate of two individuals that were alive on this planet. And both of them died. And it tells what happens to them. Verse 19, there was a certain rich man. And he habitually dressed in purple. Now, you know, I I was recently in a city where they're selling t-shirts. And it says, I love purple. You know, and I'm not sure that that's what this guy wore. Because nowadays purple has kind of become an interesting color of choice. But back then, purple was a sign of great wealth. Because purple only came from the very tiny murex shellfish which had to be collected and they were very tiny and they had to be crushed and they had to be gathered and and it had to be boiled and this special purple dye became something that was very costly and it's kind of like a a genuine rolex or a genuine anything that's of great cost it was hard to come by and so this man always wore purple some people seldom wore purple to show they had wealth this man always wore purple and fine linen And he gaily lived in splendor every day. In other words, he kind of lived in a perpetual party. And there's nothing wrong with that unless it's to the neglect of God. And then there was a certain poor man named Lazarus. And right away, your ears should perk up because Jesus never named a person in his parables because they were always just pictures. He didn't want to associate them with an individual. That's why they were good Samaritans or certain shepherds or uh, certain servant. But now all of a sudden it's come into a definite person's name. And Lazarus, not Lazarus of John 11 with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but a different Lazarus, was laid at his gate covered with sores. Very vivid picture here of a person afflicted, maybe with the afflictions of malnutrition, maybe with different cancers, whatever the sores were, a very suffering man. He longed to be fed with the crumbs falling from the rich man's table. He said, just give me the garbage. Just give me anything. Besides, even the dogs were coming, and he was so helpless and so unable to even fend for himself, the dogs would just lick his body. And it came about the poor man died. And he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham, another individual named, far away. And Lazarus, that same fella, in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Let him dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. And back across the void, the expanse, Abraham called back, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things, 
But now he's being comforted here, and you're in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from here to us, or from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. But Abraham answered back, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. It's a fascinating passage. To hear the words of Abraham 2,100 years after he died. To hear the words of, of someone in the grave. And it's a fascinating passage. If you've never studied it, you should. But let me give you some details. Verse 22 says, first of all, there's permanence to our existence. Only the body died, not the soul. And also says that there's a permanent direction that our life leads us to. The righteous go to bliss, the lost go to torment. Verse 23, secondly, tells us not only is there permanence, there's consciousness in the grave. And it says in verse 23, in the grave we're conscious, we can see, we can remember, we can recognize people, we even can recognize people we never met. There is an intuitive recognition of Abraham who had died centuries before. There is also the rich man and Lazarus who know each other. There also seems to be some type of ability to see at great distances. Verse 23 says they could see afar off. There was a long distance recognition of those from this life. It says that he saw Lazarus. Uh, This rich man saw the man from his gate. Probably didn't know him, never talked to him, but he saw him and recognized him. So it seems like our minds are intact Verse 23 also says that in the eternal state, you can talk and be understood and hear. Verse 24 says that physical desires are still present like thirst. And that's what gives me the the concept that a, a big part of hell is going to be the unmitigated torment of lust, whatever form it takes in our lives, if it's not been dealt with through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 24 says there's also painfulness. In the grave, there is an experience of pain for the lost. Notice the vivid contrast, what he says in verse 24. That tongue that never lacked on earth called for a hand that was unheeded at his gate. That tongue that never spoke kindly to Lazarus, that never, that never commanded he be ministered to, that tongue was experiencing great torment. And he wanted Lazarus just for one drop of water. And that would have satisfied him. Verse 25 says also in the grave there's memory. In the grave events from earthly life can be recalled and the memory is unimpaired. It's interesting how as a, as a baby we start the process of curiosity and of discovery and we grow through into our prime and then we begin declining and the memory starts failing and, and at first the, the short-term memory goes, then the distant memory goes and finally there's no awareness. 
And yet that has all been preserved and God gives it back to us in the grave and that memory comes back. That's why it's so important what you do with your life because you're going to remember. And for Christians, God's going to wipe away the tears as we sorrow for what we didn't do for him or what we did do that wasn't acceptable to him. And of course, all the sin is going to be removed and we're going to only remember that which was done for Christ But for the lost, there's the unimpaired memory of wickedness and of times that were neglected for godliness. Verse 26 also tells us there's hopelessness. In the grave, there's no escape. There's a great chasm talked about. There's an eternaliness of being beyond help. No one can pass back and forth in eternal separation, hopelessness. Verse 27 says the grave also has horror. In the grave, the occupants of the torment want no one else to come. It's so bad. That's how you know that this was not forged. What's interesting is the Greek gods and the Egyptian gods and the Roman gods and the Phoenician gods and the Assyrian gods and the Babylonian gods were just blown up humans. They had all the lusts and desires of humans. They had all the foibles and frailties of humans. And their gods were just kind of like big people. When you come to the Bible, you find something that's not of this world. You find a God that's infinitely holy, that makes no mistakes, that has an infinitely high standard no human can attain to. And you find records like this. If humans were writing this, they would never write this because it's too hopeless, it's too dark. Painters are taught you never leave a forest black without putting a path out of it because people don't like hopelessness. The horror of terror, torment, Don't let anybody else come, he says in verse 27. The reality of constant torment only drove him to have others flee this place. And I was listening on the radio coming out of St. Louis, and I heard them say a biographical sketch of a recent punk rocker, which dates the sketch. Uh, He says, I want to go to hell because I want to have my friends and my fun. He doesn't understand hell. He won't see his friends because it's blackness of darkness. And the only fun he'll have is going to be remembering how how wonderful the gospel message he might have heard was. That'll be his only ray of hope, even though he'll be hopeless, and he'll never get to partake of that hope of the gospel. Well... Verse 27 also says there's no communication from the lost dead to the living aloud. The dead have no influence in the spirit world. And that's why the next time uh, there's an Edgar Cayce or a, or a, a Jeannie Dixon or, or anybody else that's talking about all this communication from the dead, you know it's untrue. God has always condemned necromancy and any witchcraft or occultic communication with the dead. The dead cannot speak to the living. They cannot cross back and forth. We cannot get someone to communicate with lost uncle, you know, whoever, like Bewitched, you know, talks about. You can't do that. God says it's, it's impassable. It also grieves God whenever we are involved or even look upon occultic practices. It's interesting also that the Lord reveals in verse 29 that the word of God will determine the destiny of everyone. Everything else will pass away, but verse 29 says that the word of God is what will determine their destiny. And it's not always supernatural events that will convince people. 
Remember, Christ's miracles and the apostles and the prophets only confirm faith, never produce faith. Jesus didn't do miracles to make people believe in him. He only did miracles to affirm who he was and to affirm the faith of those who were seeking after the truth. And that's why there's such an error in our world today where there are so many well-meaning people that say if we can just do miracles like the New Testament, we can win the Muslims, we can win the pagans. Right here it says, if they won't listen to the word of God, even raising people from the dead won't bring them to faith. You remember at the, at the crucifixion of Christ how the earthquake came and the graves were opened? And then at the resurrection of Christ, dead people started streaming in, resurrected from all over the land of Israel and converged on Jerusalem to be the, the crop of the first fruits that came out with Christ from the grave. And even at that, so few believed. People don't believe miracles if they won't listen to the word of God. Finally, verse 29 says that in the grave there's seemingly this intuition because Abraham seems to know the events after his life. He was born in 2166 and he lives until sometime 180 years or so after that. He knows about Moses who who lived 700 years after him and, and Abraham knew the history of his death after his death and so there seems to be an intuitive awareness in the eternal state of what's going on after the person dies but the key in verse 31 is that no one goes back no one can go back and warn people well that's that's the hopelessness of those who are in the grave what should be the hope-filledness of our lives and I just want to sketch this for you because our response to 1 Thessalonians 4.13, and you can turn back there as I close, is this. The apostle says, I don't want you to be hopeless. I don't want you to be despairing like all those tombs on the Apian Way. I don't want you to be like the rich man who, who was hopeless. I don't want you to be uninformed. He says, I want you to have hope. How can we have hope tonight? Just some simple ways. Now, number one, we should live in expectancy, looking. You know how you have hope? You look for something. You look for Christ. Let me just jot these verses down. I'll read them to you. Matthew twenty-five, thirteen. Jesus said this, Watch therefore, you don't know the day or the hour the Son of Man is coming. We must remember that for us, we are to be watching for Jesus. He rewards us for looking for him. And, and if you can't do anything else, maybe you can't you know, play in the orchestra or teach a class. You can get a reward just for looking for Jesus. You can do that anywhere, anytime. If you can't sleep at night, look for Jesus. Tell him, come quickly. He rewards people that long his, for his return. Matthew 25, 13. Luke, 13 or Luke 12, 35 says this. Let your waist be girded, let your lamps be burning, and you yourselves be like those who wait for their master. And when he returns from the wedding, that he comes and knocks, they will open immediately. God expects us to be patiently expecting his return. It's such a joy to pull up and, and to see the children looking through the windows waiting for me to come home for lunch or for supper at night and to see those little bodies moving so quickly because they were waiting at the window. We just pulled up to a family whose home we visited and, and when we pulled up this dark row, we were coming for supper and we finally pulled in their driveway, all we could see are those little faces in the bottom of the window. And as soon as our headlights came, they just went Pew! and you could tell they were saying, they're here. You know, Jesus says it gives me great joy if I see your face looking out the window of your life waiting for me.
Acts 1, 7 says this, We don't know exactly when it's going to be. Jesus said it's not for you to know the time or the season that the Father has put under his own authority. He said, I want you to not know. There are no signs of Christ's return. No signs. The only signs are of his destruction of the earth after seven years. And it's going to be easy to track that. Just wait till everything gets ruined, destroyed, and the whole sky is falling. He'll come back. There are no signs of Christ coming for his church. No signs. He says, you won't know that. Just be ready. Revelation twenty two twenty says this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. And John says, Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We know it's coming because Jesus said so. So number one, we should be expectant. Number two, we should be patient. James 5, 8 says, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And if we're patient, we should resist in every way the calculating, speculating lifestyle. What do I mean by that? Well, there are equally great and saintly teachers who have very divergent views. And remember, it's not for us to know when Christ is going to come. Let me give you a litany of the sad predictions of the people that did predict. Martin Luther said Jesus would come in 1556. He didn't. The famous Bible commentator John Cotius said it would be in 1667. Amos Comenius said it would be in 1672. These are Christians, godly expositors who in print said these things. The scientist Isaac Newton predicted the Lord would come in 1715. Noted scholar J.A. Bengal taught that it would be in 1836. Beyond all these are the contradictions of the Millerites, known today as the Seventh-day Adventists, and even those recent prophecy hounds. I remember the book that came out, 88 Reasons for 1988 Being Christ's Return. Then the next year, the guy very ambitious, came out with a hundred reasons it would be in 89. Sold even more books. I like what one German pastor said in the 50s. Eschatology, or Bible prophecy about future events, should do three things in our lives. It should rebuke dogmatism. As soon as someone gets dogmatic about prophecy, they're off the Bible page. Because God veils prophecy in an intrigue so that we're not so busy buttoning the, the, the faces on all the characters in the last days that we miss the real purpose of prophecy, which is seeing Jesus Christ in his beauty and living today like he's going to come. That's the reason of prophecy. Not to color your map into what the ten nations are going to be. And not to figure out if, if it's going to be an implanted chip or if it's going to be a tattooed Social Security number or if it's the strip on the back of your ATM card. That's not the purpose of prophecy. It should rebuke dogmatism. It should induce forbearance. We should be very patient with people that don't agree with our eschatology. Eschatology is wonderful, and I have a very strong uh, belief in what the Bible teaches. But for those that don't believe that, I have no problem. For the dear Reformed brethren who believe that we're in the millennium right now, great. The only thing I say to them is Satan has a long chain if he's chained in the pit and we're in the millennium today. But whatever. And finally, it should provoke inquiry. We should be expectant. We should be patient. But most of all, we should be prepared. And I take you back to what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.11. And I want you to think about that as you live life today and as long as the Lord gives us. 
since everything's going to be destroyed in the ultimate Death Star Gamma Flash that God's going to bring in this universe, what kind of people should we be this week, tonight, in holy conduct and godliness? Have you ever asked yourself that? What does God want me to live like tonight? If Jesus should come tonight, what do you want him to find you doing in bed, in your mind, your thoughts, in the chambers of your mind, of your imagery? What do you want him to find you focusing and obsessing yourself with tomorrow? What do you want him to find in your locker, in your security strong box at the bank? What do you want him to find in your database of your computer, in your history file of your computer? What do you want him to find? What do you want him to find written on your heart from this book? Jesus may come today, glad day, glad day, or sad day, sad day. We should be expecting his return. We should be longing for the one we love. We should be patient, not speculating, not arguing, not fighting, not dividing over eschatology. We should be studying this book so it gives us hope but looking for Jesus all the way. But grow in grace, verse 18, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and let our lives bring him glory tonight until the day that eternity starts when we're in his presence. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, I hear Peter. I can hear his voice through your spirit across these centuries. I hear that wise voice of a man who failed, who you restored, asking that piercing question, how should we live, since the only thing that matters is you and anything attached to you, Lord Jesus. I pray that your saints would make some decisions to perhaps spend less time in things that neutralize your spirit's work. Less time in exposing themselves that grieve your Holy Spirit. Less time in things that debilitate the growth of the fruit of the Spirit. And more time worshiping you privately so that our public worship corporately here will be enhanced. How wonderful it would be to be so ready on Saturday night for the Lord's Day on Sunday morning that we just can't wait to come here and to energize our voices and our spirits, unfolding them and opening them before you, magnifying your name. I pray that, that frittering away time on computers and computer games would diminish in the hearts of some of your people this week. And that reading occultic junk and science fiction speculation and romance trash will just lessen in the lives of your people this week. And I pray that there would be a diligent, earnest focusing on reading your word and on reading it until your image is clearer and clearer. And that living it out in business life and family life and social life would be pursued by your people this week. And I pray that 
Wednesday when we come together again and next Sunday morning that all of us will be able to detect a change in our worship that we all participate because we've gotten ready. We have decided that we ought to live in all manner of godliness because you're coming. We don't know when. We want to be ready. I pray that you would consume us with a passion to see you every day and to grow in your graciousness and in your image. And that's our heart's desire. If that's your heart's desire tonight, say amen.